1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker, the political editor, stepping in for Sebastian Payne, who's escaped from the Westminster madhouse to go to the sanity of the Republican convention in Ohio. In this episode, we'll be discussing Brexit and whether Britain is making any progress towards leaving the EU, plus the Labour leadership battle, hotting up between Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Stevens, the FT's chief political commentator, Jim Picard, the chief political correspondent, James Blitz, the Whitehall editor, newly appointed, and Marcus Roberts from the pollster YouGov. Thank you all for joining us. So let's begin with Brexit. Theresa May has settled into her role as prime minister and attention has shifted back to Brexit and what exactly it will look like. Miss May travelled to meet Angela Merkel for the first time, a crucial relationship, and there appeared to be an amicable agreement that official talks won't begin until 2017. But François Hollande, the French president, said he wants them to begin as soon as possible. It is these difficult relationships across Europe that the new Prime Minister has to manage. James Blitz, now that we have a government and the situation's been stabilised, it's time to focus on Brexit. What do you think the significance is of what Mrs May has been up to this week? Well, of course,
2: she has started to do the external diplomacy, as you say, by going to see Angela Merkel in Berlin and then Francois Hollande in Paris. Uh, Certainly, the atmospherics look pretty good between the German Chancellor and Mrs May. And I think it's pretty clear that the Germans are prepared to wait a bit before the British trigger Article 50, which is the formal pathway for British exit. But I didn't get the impression, and of course you were there so we could hear from you, but I didn't get the impression that there was much more give from Mrs. Merkel. I still think that there are difficult issues for the British. One of them, for example, is how far can they actually start proper trade negotiations with non-EU states in this two-year period, as Liam Fox, the Trade Secretary, wants to do. This is against the EU rules. Mm. And to what extent will there be informal negotiations between the British and the Europeans as the British try and formulate their negotiating position in the run-up to the beginning of next year? I don't think there was any give there at all from Mrs Merkel. I don't think there are going to be any informal negotiations, and François Hollande certainly at the dinner that they'll be having won't give that at all. So... I think we're at the beginning of a summer where the British will now have to begin the work on that negotiating position, but I still don't think we're anywhere near resolving the key issue, which is what is the balance between uh, controlling immigration and access to the single market? That's the big issue for the British. There's a long way to go on that.
1: Yeah, as you say, I was, I was over in Brussels, and the impression I got from the Brits was they were, they were pleased that Angela Merkel had given the Prime Minister some breathing space, but at the same time, she did also say, we can't leave these things up in the air, and I think they expect something to be done regarding the launch of Article 50 in the first half of next year. Um, Philip Stevens, um, there's a sense that Theresa May is trying to get around the chancelleries of Europe, maybe in a way trying to sideline Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president, who was very forthright after the Brexit vote, saying we've got to get on with this straight away.
3: I think that's so. But I don't think she's alone in sidelining uh, Mr Juncker. I think what we're seeing now, ironically, just as Britain leaves, as it were, or prepares to leave, we're seeing uh, big changes in Europe, which are making it more intergovernmental, weakening the commission. Mrs Merkel, I think, is one of the leaders most frustrated with Mr Juncker. So in a way, Europe is looking more like the Brits always wanted it to look like just at the very moment we've decided to leave.
1: Now, in terms of launching Article 50, which has been the subject of much debate in Berlin and Paris this week, it's going to be a really big decision for Theresa May, isn't it? Because the moment you start it, you hand over the negotiating power to the people facing you across the table. How does Theresa May manage that?
3: I think that is, as you say, very tricky, but I think there's a prior hurdle to get over, which is when you launch Article 50 and say this is the beginning of the negotiation, you actually have to show some of your hand, at least the broad parameters of where you want to end up. And the first job that Mrs May has is to negotiate that with her own party, because within her own party, there are a lot of people who say, look, out is out is out. And that means no formal relationship with the EU beyond a sort of basic trading agreement. A lot of others on the sort of pro-business side of the Tory party saying, no, no, we need an association agreement of sorts that keeps us in the single market. So first she's got to come to some sort of consensus in her own party and indeed with Scotland, with Nicola Sturgeon. Then she hands over power to the rest of the EU. So it's, as you suggest, a very, very big decision.
1: And also, very problematic because there's going to be a consultation between the government and the stakeholders, in inverted commas. So Philip mentioned Scotland, obviously Wales, Northern Ireland, business, farmers, academics. All of them will come back with the same message, which is we want maximum possible access to the European single market. And yet the British people in the referendum appear to be calling for tough controls on immigration. How does he resolve that, do you think? Well, I think after this short period in government,
2: she's given a stake to the different parts in the debate. I think rather deliberately. On the one hand, she's put the Brexit ministers in the three key ministries which are going to negotiate with Europe and with the outside world, which are going to set the terms of exit. But on the other hand, she has been very clear about the important role that Scotland has to play. She she went and visited Scotland last Friday in the middle of the formation of her government, which was a very big statement to make. And although I don't think Scotland has a veto over what the British government does, but she has certainly put Nicola Sturgeon in a position where she can influence the outcome a bit more in the direction that Scotland was like. And as you say, there are all the other stakeholders, the farming community, where Andrea Leadsom has now got to face them, which was another very skillful piece of uh, manoeuvring, if rather crafty, by, by Mrs May. So all in all, yes, as Philip says, although she has been in Europe this week, the real action is actually at home in the UK between now and the end of the year, where these different players have got to come together
1: and try and work out where does the balance lie? Philip, what's your hunch as to how Theresa May will make that trade-off between access to the single market, jobs and growth? Controlling immigration.
3: These are early days, but as I understand it, she doesn't want to make the trade off herself. She wants it to, if you like, to, to sort of grow out of all the discussions that James made. And of course, one of the feelings in Whitehall at the moment is that what may look impossible today, a few weeks after the referendum, when, you know, memories are pretty sharp and some of the sort of hurts pretty raw may look possible in a year's time. Say, for example, the British economy goes into recession, then those people on the out-is-out side of the argument may find that a harder case to make. So I think what she wants to do is to set these broad parameters but let people themselves see the trade-off and say to people, "Look, if you want to slam the door against migrants, you've got to understand that slams the door against British exports. Do you really want that?" And I think that's the way she'll try to build a political, if not consensus, uh, enough political support to come out with, in the end, a reasonable trade-off.
1: Now, James, just talking about the economy, there's been a bit of a sigh of relief around the city this week that maybe the sharp deterioration on the economic outlook has been averted. Do you think that's the case? Do you think we're going to avoid a recession? There have been some
2: superficial or some short-term moves which suggest that things are maybe a little easier at this stage than people thought. The Bank of England's local agents came up with a report earlier in the week which suggested that consumer confidence has not really taken much of a dip. The FTSE 250, which is an important benchmark because that's where a lot of sterling-denominated companies are rather than the FTSE 100 – It's pretty much back to where it was at the time of the June 23rd referendum. But there's still plenty of predictions, if you like, that uh, things are not going to be too good at the end of the year. The IMF came out with its World Economic Outlook this week, which showed that the UK economy is going to contract fairly significantly, even if the British end up having what most people would see as the benign outcome here, which is full EEA membership, which is the one where the UK stays in the single market and has only minimum, if any, migration control. So at the moment, yes, things are maybe not looking as bad as people thought. But I don't think anybody's optimistic about the future. Without talking things down, I think the, the, the consensus assumption is that the UK economy is going to have lower growth than that had been the case before we left.
3: I think the big thing here is I certainly didn't expect a sort of immediate fall into recession because the big thing here is investment and what companies are saying privately not yet publicly but certainly privately is why would they invest amidst all this uncertainty if you're a Japanese or a German company thinking of expanding in Britain Surely the sensible thing to do is to wait and see the outcome. Well,
1: just to interject there, Philip, we did have this £24 billion acquisition of holdings by a Japanese company. That's surely a vote of confidence. Well, in the no, but economy.
3: that's not a direct investment. That's shareholders buy. you know, that's a Japanese company buying shares from shareholders, which some will be British, some American, whatever. The investment I'm talking about is the sort of building a plant or expanding a plant mm. or setting up a new enterprise. People, I think, are stalling. But, of course, that doesn't come through in the economic figures for some months and even perhaps over a year. And I think most people at Bank of England and the Treasury are thinking now of flat investment over the next year. As people just take the logical decision, not that we're necessarily getting out of Britain, but we're going to wait and see, then that... that of itself would bring a pretty sharp slowdown.
1: If there has been any stabilisation of the economy after June the 23rd, how important do you think it's been that Theresa May was quickly installed as Prime Minister?
3: I think that's very important because business always wants certainty. But I think in this particular negotiation, they're going to have to wait a lot longer than they think. And The, the thing that we haven't discussed up to now is the chaotic upheaval in Whitehall, where The whole of the civil service is trying to re-engineer itself over a period of weeks, as it were, to carry out a negotiation which will be the biggest since the Second World War. Every department is involved. Someone was saying to me only the other day that, look, you can't even start thinking about trade negotiations until you establish your own domestic policies. So Britain has to have an agricultural policy, Before it can do a trade deal with any other country, because the other country is going to want to know, well, you're not going to subsidise, are you? It's not going to be unfair. Same applies to industry policy, competition policy, environmental policy, industrial regulation. The list goes on and on. This is a absolutely mammoth task for Whitehall. An irony here that conservatives who've been spent years cutting back the civil service (laughs) is going to be hiring thousands and thousands of new ones. It's interesting that David Cameron
1: always avoided this machinery of government upheaval precisely because he was worried that civil servants spent the first six months arguing about who gets the pot plant and who sits next to the window. And in the middle of an economic and political, not when you use the word, crisis, but certainly... Instability, that's another layer of problems, doesn't it, James? Yes, it does. As Philip has said, there is a really very significant
2: upheaval taking place at every level. Partly it's that the Department of International Trade being set up under Liam Fox Hmm. has no trade negotiators. If you actually look at the figures, we have between 12 and 20 British officials who know something about trade. That is what has appeared (laughs) in official documents. Canada has something like 800. So you have to do a very significant amount of recruitment of trade officials You've also got a Department of Brexit, which is now obviously being built up, which will have uh, about three or 400 people. But a lot of those people are coming from the Foreign Office, where the European Directorate is being hollowed out, and also from the UK's representation in Brussels. So that's creating a fairly horrible turf war, which is making people pretty unhappy. So one of the questions which I think people are asking, and of course you had the Foreign Affairs Select Committee report coming out this week saying it, was couldn't David Cameron have planned a bit more for this, knowing that... There could have been a no, and there was absolutely no contingency planning whatsoever in Whitehall ahead of the vote for that. I think it was difficult to do it because there are so many moving parts after a referendum like this, and inevitably it's up to the new prime minister to decide how they're going to configure Whitehall. But I think there's basic stuff. I think the Department for International Trade could have begun scoping the need for negotiators on the grounds that it might end up being a vote to leave, and that sort of thing just hasn't happened. James Blitz and Philip Stevens,
1: thank you very much. This week, the Labour leadership contest officially began as the party declared Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith will go head-to-head this summer. An extraordinary 180,000 non-party members paid £25 to vote in this election, bringing the party's electorate close to 600,000. But are all these new members pro or anti Mr Corbyn? Jim Picard, the leadership race is going to run on throughout the summer. What do we know about the two candidates and what will their message be?
0: Well, we know that by conventional standards, they're both left-wing politicians. but By Labour standards, we know that there's a gulf between them. We know that Jeremy Corbyn, the incumbent, as left-wing as you can get while still being a social democrat, just about. Whereas Owen Smith is, inverted commas, soft left which means that he wants a 50p upper rate of income tax, he wants a return to wage councils, he wants an end to austerity. But in the world we now live in, to a lot of grassroots labour activists, in particular supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, Owen Smith is a kind of traitorous Blairite, because 10 years ago he talked about choice in public services on one occasion, and because he seemed a little bit ambivalent about the Iraq war. And we will see those differences amplified massively. We will see the charge against Mr Corbyn that he's leading his party into ruin because 173 MPs think he's, listen, not up to the job.
1: And Owen Smith, of course, used to be a lobbyist for Pfizer, the US pharmaceutical company. That doesn't look particularly good on your CV when
0: you're running against Jeremy Corbyn, does it? In terms of left-wing supporters, it looks absolutely terrible. In terms of his defence, he would say... People always say that MPs need to have a job outside politics and they've always lived in politics. Unfortunately for him, he was a special advisor for a while as well and then working as a lobbyist isn't that far removed from politics.
1: So classic route into politics that I thought we'd left behind slightly, but there we go. Marcus Roberts, what does your polling tell us about the new Labour membership
4: and who are they likely to back? This week's polling by YouGov shows that if the election for Labour leader was held today, Jeremy Corbyn would win quite comfortably. He'd take about 58% of the vote and Owen Smith would have, at very best, 32-34%, depending on how you cut the numbers. However, the one thing we know about Labour leadership races from the last 10 years is they are very unpredictable things. Everyone knew, in adverted commas, that David Miliband was going to be the leader until he lost. Everyone knew that Jeremy Corbyn didn't have a chance until he won. So that's the big hope for Owen Smith's campaign. It's interesting to think about why Owen Smith has ended up as the candidate, because just two weeks ago we all thought it was going to be Angela Eagle. The real reason for that is what the rules are. The rules of the Labour Party selection race this time said that there could only be 48 hours for recruiting new members and that everything else would be on the basis of the existing Labour Party membership as it stood before January 12th of this year. That's the freeze date argument you'll have heard about. What that meant in candidate selection terms was that the Labour Party is going to fight an argument over persuading last summer's members as to who they want to vote for, as opposed to attempting to recruit very large numbers, hundreds of thousands or even a million new supporters, who Angela Eagle might have been better placed to appeal to. That's why the Parliamentary Labour Party went with a soft left candidate like Owen Smith, because they think he has the best chance of persuading Corbyn people to back him instead and thus take the crown.
0: I mean, given the fact there's a transferable vote mechanism in this, why didn't they both stand, Jim? I think the lesson people have taken from last summer's leadership race is where you had... Jeremy Corbyn at one end of the spectrum, and then you had four other candidates at varying levels at the other end of the spectrum. And he soaked up all the media coverage. He may hate the MSM, or his people hate the MSM, and yet it was very good to him last summer because we found him fascinating. We all got very excited by the phenomenon of Corbyn mania. And the other four just got sort of drowned out because... I can't remember the difference between Yvette Cooper's policy on the NHS or Andy Burnham's policy on it, and you know, Liz Kendall differentiates herself but in the wrong direction by seeming very, very Blairite. And the idea this time is just a simple head-to-head, and I guess the example you could give is Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders, where you had one moderate US politician from the Democrats against one right out there on the left. It was much more straightforward.
1: And. Marcus, do we know anything at all about these people who've joined or paid the £25 to vote in the last few days? Do we think they're more likely to be people who've joined to save the Labour Party, in inverted commas, or are they people who've been signed up by Momentum, the Jeremy Corbyn fan club?
4: That's the $64 million question in Labour politics today. Who are these members and how will they break? Because how they break will determine whether Owen Smith even has a chance getting off the starting blocks in this contest. Last year, Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership effectively because he carried a comfortable majority of existing members, he won a big majority of new supporters, and he won a majority of trade union members. For Owen Smith to win this year, Owen Smith needs to win a majority of members, needs to run even amongst trade unionists, and needs to keep his defeat in the supporters section to a narrow margin. So all eyes are going to be on polls and analyses of who the new members are and who the new supporters are that have joined in the 48-hour period to determine whether or not Owen Smith can get off the starting blocks in this race.
0: In terms of what I've been hearing, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn himself seems to be delighted with the surge of 184,000 people joining up as registered supporters in 48 hours. Uh, I've spoken to Momentum. They say that no fewer than 720,000 people have accessed their Twitter feed, email, Facebook through the relevant pages for joining up as a supporter. So even if a small proportion of those 700,000 have been signing up, that's quite a lot. And yet, the saving Labour people are also quite optimistic that they have galvanised a lot of people who don't want to see Jeremy Corbyn stay there and see 150 MPs uh, deselected. And my sources within Victoria Street, Labour's headquarters, they're suggesting that it has been quite evenly divided and more surprising, perhaps in favour of Owen Smith than you might think. What do you think, Marcus, is the
4: likelihood of Jeremy Corbyn being unseated? It is more likely than not that uh, Jeremy Corbyn survives this attempt because to win, Owen Smith needs to land that perfect symmetry of different events. The win amongst the members, the narrow loss amongst the registered supporters, the even split of trade unionists. That's going to be very tough to pull out. When you think about U.S. presidential politics, as we want to this year, it's sometimes said that the candidate with the most paths to the presidency is the candidate that wins. The candidate that can win either Ohio or Florida to win and can afford to lose something along the way. That's how they win. Jeremy Corbyn has a lot of ways of winning. Owen Smith only has a narrow way of winning. That is not to say that this is mission impossible, but it does make it mission rather difficult. My take on this would be that if you went back
0: a year to the early 2015 and you said, imagine a scenario whereby you can choose Jeremy Corbyn, the veteran backbencher, as the leader of the Labour Party and you can lose potentially 150 well-known MPs consigned to a historical dustbin, you'd think I was crazy. And on paper, you'd think Owen Smith might have a chance. But bear in mind, loads and loads of these new Labour members who signed up in droves, who see Jeremy Corbyn as a Christ-like figure, a kind of Gandalf-type figure... I'm not making this up. This is how some people on social media portray him. A lot of them are very young and they don't frankly care if Alan Johnson leaves his seat or if Harriet Harman disappears. They just love Jeremy Corbyn. Can I ask about the role of the
1: trade unions in this? Because up until now, Len McCluskey, the leader of Unite, the biggest union, has been solidly behind Jeremy Corbyn. How do you think the unions will act during the next few
0: weeks? And do you think there's any chance that Unite actually might change its position and switch across to Owen Smith? The role of the unions in Labour's history is fascinating they are the paymasters, they deliver millions and millions of pounds to the party every year. And in the 1980s, it was the moderate trade unions such as the GMB which joined forces with the moderate MPs such as Neil Kinnock to rescue the party or seize the party, depending on your perspective, from the militant tendency. This time around, Len McCluskey, leader of the Unite the Union, which is the biggest union, it's the biggest donor, he, through thick and thin, has stuck with Jeremy Corbyn. He's put his reputation on the line by staying with the leader, and I think he will stay with him through the summer contest. What's very interesting is that the GMB and Unison, who are the next two biggest unions, are relatively moderate I've heard chat that they may consider backing Owen Smith. Certainly the GMB has been thinking about it, but my best intel tells me that they will both sit on the sidelines for the next six weeks and just stay out of this bloodbath.
1: OK, finally, I ask you to both look into your crystal balls. If Jeremy Corbyn wins, and the bookmakers, I think, make him 8-1 to one on to win, if he wins, what happens next? Will there be a wave of deselections of moderate MPs, or will the parliamentary party split off from the
4: Corbynite Labour Party? there'll be attempts at deselections, but it'll be very difficult to carry out because Jeremy Corbyn, whilst he controls large chunks of the Labour Party machine, doesn't have the kind of majorities he needs within the machinery, actually, of the National Executive Committee subcommittees, which will decide these things, or Labour Party conference, which will ultimately have to decide on the issue of deselection. So I don't think that, that issue is as, as salient as, as we might imagine. What is interesting is what happens to the politics of the Labour Party if Jeremy Corbyn wins. And I think there we'll see Theresa May occupying more and more of that ground. She's already begun to appropriate large parts of Ed Miliband's responsible capitalism Mm -hmm. agendas. We used to talk about, talking about worker representation on boards. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see if Theresa May moved soon on the regional bank's agenda next. If she does that, then you will see a more social democratic conservative party occupying the more interesting space of what used to be the Labour Party, and that's the problem that Labour faces, because by Having this contest between the soft left as epitomized by Owen Smith and the hard left as epitomized by Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party is still speaking to itself rather than speaking to the country. And until the Labour Party can actually connect with voters, until you can have a Labour leader candidate who runs for leader in the same way that they want to run for prime minister, the Labour Party is not going to have a very good chance of winning a general election.
0: I think it's very easy for newspaper columnists to talk about Labour moderates splitting off and starting a new party. It looks so obvious on paper. Why didn't they do it? When you look back at the SDP in the 1980s, you may remember that at one point they were running at about 25% in the polls. But the brutal first-past-the-post system left them with only a handful of seats. And at the end of the day, most moderate MPs know that when they get elected they have no idea how many of those thousands of votes are because of their own personal following and how much of those votes is just due to the fact that they're standing under a Labour banner and people are voting for the party and not them. And unless 150 of them can agree to march off together at exactly the same moment, I think game theory suggests that a lot of them will either just stay put or will give up and walk away.
1: And of course, another theory is that uh, if Corbyn wins... There could be another attempt to unseat him next year, in which case I'll have you both back in the studio to run us through it all over again. Well, look, that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our hard currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's currencies correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday.